Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 48 of the Essential X Last, where I'm reporting in from a, a new chair. I got myself a chair finally, so uh, hopefully it won't be quite as squeaky as it usually is here. Though my, you know, my right foot keeps hitting the damn lever that raises and lowers the chair, so you might hear like a clicking every now and again. I'm trying to control my legs. It's uh, not always the most easy thing in the world, but I shall endeavor to, uh, you know, do my best. Uh, I'm also coming to you thrice vaxxed. Just got uh, my booster shot for the. Uh, for the old COVID vaccine, it's been about six months since I got the, you know, the second shot, so uh, I guess it was time. So I went in and got that done, and uh, here I am now with a, a very, very cute band-aid on my shoulder. As you see, I go to a, a nearby pediatrician's office who offers the uh, COVID shots, and, uh, you know, I picked this spot because of uh, the convenience factor. It's right down the road, it's never busy, it's in and out, it's real, real quick, it's very, very convenient. But I didn't take into account another benefit, and that's, uh, since it's a pediatrician, all of these folks are used to giving shots to little kids, and uh, so it's as quick and painless as possible. I barely even felt it today, so that's uh, that's a good thing. But uh, that's not what we're here to talk about, is it? We're here to talk about Factor 3, because Factor 3 is finally being addressed in our X-Men book here, so let's hop right in. This is X-Men number 38, had a November 1967 cover date. Story's called The Sinister Shadow of Doomsday. Written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Don Heck, inks by George Roussos as George Bell. Letters LP Gregory, colors are about 90% accurate. Edit Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now, this is a very special issue, not just because of the Factor 3 story, because, well, not to bury the lead here, the Factor 3 portion of this uh, issue isn't all that great, but uh, this is the first issue to include a backup strip. For a long time now, Stan's been promising us that we're going to get to the bottom of the X-Men's origins. And so those backup strips start right here today. But uh, first, well, we got to get through Factor 3. So we pick up right where we left off last issue. You know, the X-Men have just freed themselves from Factor 3's stupid-looking whatever the hell, Opto, Opt, whatever, that machine, <laughs> that wheel-looking thing. And uh, they're being addressed via monitor by the mutant master himself. Now, he tells them that uh, World War III is imminent, and there ain't a darn thing these meddling teenagers can do about it. Just then, the Beast demonstrates his secondary mutation of having uh, bomb-sniffing feet. He encourages his teammates to load into a pair of Factor Three UFOs and escape the place immediately. And no sooner do they leave than the place goes barroom. So I guess Bernard the Poet and all those stoners at the Coffee Gogo weren't just whistling Dixie when they were... Uh, <laughs> Praising Beast's feet. Now, the X-Men decide that their best course of action here is to fly back across the Atlantic to the mansion where they can decide what their next best course of action will be. Uh, I mean, it's not like there's a nuclear war in the works or something, right? Well, from here, we shift back to the mutant master who's addressing and dressing down the changeling. It's basically just a retelling of Factor 3's big plan. Instigate World War III, the East and the West destroy one another, then Factor 3 swoops in and takes over the remains. He also refers to the Changeling as a fool, which our gaudily dressed baddie does not take too kindly. Starting to smell some dissension in the ranks of Factor 3. Changeling reminds the Master that it was him who gathered the agents, and has basically done all the work while M.M. just sat there. The mutant master sends down like a bolt of lightning to keep the changeling in line. He then retells the big plan again. I, I, 
It's very repetitive. Changeling apologizes for challenging the big bad and vows that they've all got the same goals here. The mutant master reveals that the Blob and Vanisher are currently enacting the first stage of the plan, while Mastermind and Eunice are standing by awaiting instruction. He then activates the Shock Ray, which pretty much looks like illuminated exhaust spewing out of some pipes. Now this apparently makes rather the rumbling sound, which really messes with the Changeling's head, and he begs the boss to stop. Now I'm aware that this is all very, very subtle, so you may not have picked up on this just yet, but uh, there's a wee bit of tension between the Changeling and the Mutant Master. And I wonder if that might come up again. Hmm. The Mutant Master takes his leave, and the Changeling thinks to himself that the big boss seems to be growing more arrogant by the minute. He wonders if he and the rest of the muties made the right decision in joining Factor 3, claiming that before they used to just be social outcasts, where now they're nothing more than slaves. He decides to put a pin in it, saying he'll worry about that later. We next join the Mutant Master himself, who is ranting and raving to himself about how the Changeling and the rest suspect nothing about his true goal and purpose. So, rut-row... We shift scenes back to the Xavier School, where the X-Men spend an entire panel planning what to do next. Now, you see, as luck would have it, Cerebro managed to pick up on some radio signals that Factor 3 sent out to the Soviet and American militaries. So, Cerebro can pretty much track whatever the story needs it to, is uh, what we're getting at here. And so, exactly 60 seconds later, our heroes are back in the Factor 3 UFOs. Warren, Hank, and Gene are headed for the Soviet Union, or somewhere behind the Iron Curtain, while Scott and Bobby are going to head to an American base. We get a scene with Jean where she worries that she'll never see the cursed-eyed love of her life again, because got to keep that going. Now, she, Beast, and Angel arrive at a certain location in Eastern Europe in no time flat. Warren gives the area the aerial once over, even though they were, you know, just flying in the Factor 3 eggs like five seconds ago. Uh, Anyway, he discovers a heavily guarded castle where, as Hank McCoy puts it, our anti-capitalistic comrades are currently conferring. Turns out Factor 3 somehow planted an explosive device in the castle, which that would be how our World War 3 scenario kicks off here. They would go boom, they would think the Americans did it, bingo, bingo, everything blows up. So our heroes head over to the place and are immediately attacked by a gaggle of comrades. Beast does his damnedest to hold them off while Gene and Warren make their way inside. Now, once inside, they run right into the Vanisher and Blob along with a pair of those hooded geeks. Back to the Changeling, who's currently chatting up the captive Professor X. He shows him some footage from the... (laughs) Predictoscope, which is very, very stupid, but we'll play along anyway. Now, the screen shows the cities of Earth being rendered into nothing more than smoldering ash and ruins. Now, Xavier, he sees this. And he's trying to be rational here. He's trying to reason with this idiot, noting that, you know, if the planet becomes like a radioactive ruin, mutants are going to die too, right? Well, that sort of uh, logic earns Chuck a big ol' slap across the face. Just then, the mutant master returns on his mobile platform. And I don't think I mentioned this yet, but apparently the mutant master is immobile. Hmm. The M.M. don't appreciate the Changeling getting physical with a hostage, as he believes that that sort of thing should be left to him and him alone. Our scene shifts over to Scott and Bobby, who are at the U.S. Air Police Base, where they're trying to warn of the Factor 3-slash-World War 3 plot, and they're begging the crew here to deactivate their nukes. And naturally, nobody believes these two mutant teenagers. The colonel even attempts to have them locked up for the night. 
which leads to a fight. So yeah, it's Iceman and, and Cyclops versus the U.S. military, so what could possibly go wrong? Now our heroes head onto the field to try to destroy the missiles before they could be launched. From here, we bounce back to East Germany, I'm assuming it's East Germany, where Warren and Jean spend three pages bouncing off the Vanisher and the Blob, until the Vanisher tries to blast our heroes with his gas pistol. Marvel Girl uses her TK to send the gas back at the baddies, which KOs them both. Vanisher, though, he's able to wriggle away and, um, you know, vanish. It's worth noting, the narration refers to the Vanisher here as a, quote, crimson-clad mutant, but he's wearing lime green. I don't know. Anyway, Angel then kills the hooded figures. I mean, they're robots, of course, but they're, they're definitely dead. They're out of commission. Just then, our heroes find themselves surrounded by Soviets. Next, we know they've been tossed into a dungeon where they're reunited with the Beast and the Blob. Huh. Now, we wrap up with the Mutant Master celebrating the fact that his plan appears to be coming together. Now, that's the end of our Factor 3 portion, but we do have our backup, and it is called A Man Called... X. Written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Werner Roth. Inks John Verboten, or Verborten. Letters Sam Rosen. Colors... I, I can't think of anything even marginally witty to say, so we'll just say Stan G. And edits by Stan Lee. Now, our backup opens with a trip into Professor Xavier's files, where we're going to start the, quote, most requested superhero series in all of Marveldom, The Origins of the X-Men. And, I mean, the quick and dirty is they were just born that way, right? Hmm. Well, our story proper opens with a pair of FBI agents watching the television news. There, it's being reported that there was a near riot when a crowd realized that there was a mutant among them. And that young mutant fled the scene. Now, our agents are Fred Duncan and Bill. Well, I guess Duncan is the only actual agent. Bill is his assistant. Now, Fred says at this point they've got no choice but to begin investigating the so-called mutant menace. And so we shift to the next day where it's already front-page news. Uh, We watch as a paperboy slings the latest edition of the Not Daily Bugle at Xavier's front door. Chuck rolls out, grabs the paper, gives it a read, and realizes that the jig is up. Humans finally realize that there are mutants in their midst. And it's time for him to be a recluse no longer. He's off to Washington, D.C. Now, we learn here that Xavier's been a hermit in his home since returning from the Korean War. He gives a bit of lip service to what happened to his stepbrother Kane over there for a little bit of context. Now, next thing we know, Xavier is flying his personal, not-yet-X-branded helicopter to our nation's capital. Where he, um, well, he mind-wipes his way into FBI headquarters. Like, for real, he mind-wipes everybody he happens across. <laughs> it's, it's something, it's very Xavier. Elsewhere, Duncan and Bill are watching the footage of the mutant sighting that started this whole thing. The film takes place on a city street where a crowd is gathered to watch a crane hoist a large air conditioning unit to the top of a building. Wow, uh, people, you know, what people used to do for entertainment, huh? Anyway, the crane is struck by a, quote, beam of scarlet light, which cracks it. And the beam of light, it might be worth noting, is yellow. Uh, The camera shifts to see a nerdy young man in sunglasses, and he's the only person in the crowd who's not panicking. Now, before the AC unit can crash back down to the ground, he removes his specs and lets loose with a deadly, cursed optic blast. The crowd then realizes that this kid's a little bit different. One of the mob even coins the term mutant as a descriptor. But before they can all descend upon him and beat him to death, he's gone. Duncan says that this whole scene was uncanny. 
Hmm, how about that? Anyway, it's here where Professor X wheels on in and introduces himself to Agent Fred. Duncan reaches for his pistol, but quickly learns that he's unable to actually pull the trigger. You see, Xavier won't let him. And so Fred Duncan is the first of many, many, many people to discover the worst-kept secret in Marvel Silver Age, that Professor X is a mutant. Xavier appeals to Duncan, offering to assist him in this project. And he goes so far as to warn that if mutants are persecuted, they'll likely turn into the monsters that the public already kind of fears that they are. Duncan gets the logic in this and decides to get into the Xavier business. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, more World War III, Warren's suspenders, and the origin of Cyclops. I'm pretty sure it's also the final part of our elongated Factor 3 storyline, which, I mean, the sooner this is over, the better, right? Um, That's issue uh, 39 coming up next, and uh, I think in 40, it's like the X-Men versus Frankenstein or something, so I don't think that has anything to do with Factor 3, so hopefully, hopefully this will come together next time. But what do we have to say about this time? Uh, Not a whole heck of a lot. I feel like we wasted a lot of time with this issue where we're just going back and forth. I mean, why why are we flying back from, you know, the uh, the Alps to New York and then back to the Alps? I don't know. It feels like just a way to eat up some pages. I guess the main takeaway here is that uh, there's a bit of a dissension between the Changeling and the Mutant Master. And we do get the idea that the mutant there's more to the Mutant Master than meets the eye here. He says that nobody... Nobody seems to be wise to his uh, game or plot, so uh, I guess we have that to look forward to. This is definitely one of the stories where I really struggle to have like anything to say, <laughs> like any sort of analysis or observation. It's, it's just kind of there. Um, we can hop into our backup, I suppose. And I tell you, I'm really interested in seeing the feedback to the uh, backup because... I really think all the letter hacks who wrote in asking about the origins of the X-Men really wanted to see, like, the X-Men as babies and children and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure that's not what we're going to get here. I think this is just going to be like an X-Men year one sort of a situation. And I wonder if that's what the readers of the day really wanted out of this uh, this little sub-series or these featurettes, I suppose. I guess time will uh, tell. I'm happy that we're finally here. And uh, as, you know, for a first chapter... I think this was very well paced, and uh, we're on track for like a gathering the forces sort of a story, which I think when it's all said and done will be pretty fun for us. And I want to say that these backups are what uh, Joe Casey kind of modernized for that Children of the Atom miniseries in around probably 1998 or so. I, I think those were based. It's been forever since I read. It's been since 1998 since I read them, but I'm pretty sure. That we see, like, Jack of Diamonds or whoever he is that uh, gets involved in the Cyclops story. Uh, I think I think the Children of the Atom mini was a retelling and a modernization of these backups. So maybe we'll take a look at those later and see how they uh, and see how well they did. But other than just acknowledging that it existed and uh, saying it was decent, I don't have a whole heck of a lot more to say about it. So I suppose I will save my commentary for uh, for later chapters when maybe there's a little bit more to talk about. But uh, that's our story. How about we hop into the mutant mailbox where we can get some readers' thoughts on uh, well a couple of semi-recent issues here. We're going to start with Richard in Oklahoma. Now, he enjoyed the Spidey guest spot in X-Men number 35. And he's got a prediction about, uh, you know, Dr. Claw. I was calling the uh, the secret big bad here. He says that the glove that we saw looked a lot like Magneto's. 
And he hopes he's right, because it's been a while since we've seen him. Now, he also liked Mark Avanier's beat poetry in the letters page, which, as the fellow who had to perform the piece, uh, was pretty painful. Now, uh, Stan says, by now, we know who that mitt belonged to, right? It wasn't Magneto. But he suggests that Richard maybe take a peek at uh, some upcoming issues of Avengers if he misses Magneto so much. And uh, we will be covering that story starting with episode 53 of this very program. Next up, Steve in Jersey. Now, this fellow tries to no-prize Scott using his optic blast without adjusting his visor in X-Men number 34. He suggests that Scott was able to train his blast to go in the exact angle it needed to in order to raise the visor on its own. And I guess that's as good an explanation as any, right? Also, Bobby and Jean accidentally call Warren Scotty, which Steve attributes to Kid Cool and the girl being uh, you know, lost in the heat of the moment. He then asks if Jean could transfer from Metro College to Princeton because they could use a pretty girl or two on campus. Okie dokie. Now, Stan and Roy thank Steve for the get-out-of-jail-free card on Sykes Blasting, but it doesn't like that thank you is transferable into a no-prize. James in Chicago is 31 years old. He wanted to make sure we knew that because he thought he'd outgrown the comics phase of his life. But along came Marvel. He says that he finds it amusing how letter hacks are so nitpicky and then gets in on the action himself, calling the gang out for Bobby and Gene calling the angel Scotty. Now, James says that this is the most glaring error he's ever seen in fiction. Okay, dude, <laughs> calm down. Um, he suggests that maybe this had something to do with the River Lethe's vapors, and then goes on for another couple of paragraphs saying how that couldn't possibly be the case. Now, Stan offers the old man a free subscription, hoping that it might get him to bite on some more Mighty Marvels. And I guess that's one way of not having to address the actual meat of the criticism of that letter, isn't it? Next up, Rich in Pennsylvania. Now, he feels like the Marvel Universe should stop picking on poor old Spidey. I guess he's referring to uh, the Spider-Man guest appearance in 35. Now, he wants to see Warren do more than fly in circles, which, yeah, that's a good point. He wants to see the X-Men drawn with eyes under their masks, and he wants an X-Men annual, damn it. Now, Stan says they'll work on the eyes bit, but warns uh, before they know it, all well, the X-Men are going to look like Little Orphan Annie in masks. Next up, Kevin in Ontario. He loved issue 34 so much he would have paid twice the price for it. Wow, let's not give Marvel any ideas, huh? How about that? Now, he wants to know what happened to Professor X, which is to say Kev wrote this letter before reading the very next issue of the mag, and Stan replies saying just as much. Gerald in Kentucky. He enjoyed everything about issue 35, but wants Xavier to escape Factor 3 ASAP, and Stan's like, yeah, we're getting to it. <laughs> keep watching, keep buying, it's gonna happen, dude. Uh, finally, we got Paul in Los Angeles. Now, he says that the X-Men are improving as a comic, and he really enjoys all the interrelation with the rest of the Marvel Universe of late. He wants more Scott and Jean romance, and he wants Scott to see a counselor to help with his insecurities. He likes Beast being the poetic giant of the team, and thinks that frat types can relate to Warren. Um, doesn't even mention poor Iceman. I guess Iceman's being left out in the cold. <clears throat> now, he asks if Mendel's laws apply to mutants. Now, this has to do with, like, traits and genes and passing things down. We'll give the quick and dirty here. Uh, we got the law of segregation, which states that each trait is defined by a gene pair. Parental genes are separated randomly so that the sex cells could uh, contain only one gene of that pair. 
The offspring inherit one generic allele from each parent during fertilization. There's also the law of independent assortment, which states that trait genes are sorted randomly, and inheritance of one trait is not dependent on the inheritance of another. Then we got the law of dominance, which states that an organism with alternative forms of a gene will express the form that is dominant. So what Paul's asking us here is, are the X-Men the sole products of their parents' marriages, relations, you know? Stan says, and this is great, he says, keep an eye out for the origin of the X-Men backups. Which, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Paul's question probably won't be addressed there. From here, let's hop into our bullpen bulletins, also known as Instant Info Insanely Inspired by Irrelevant Items of Incredible Inconsequence. Huh. First item, happy 25th anniversary to Jack and Roz Kirby. Item, those Spidey and Fantastic Four ABC shows uh, that are, you know, that are coming out, they're, they're due to kick off any time now. <laughs> Stan promises, and, and of course they will, uh, but Stan does not have an exact date. I gave the exact date a few episodes ago. If I'm remembering right, it's somewhere in mid to late September, but uh, Stan encourages all of us frantic ones to contact ABC TV and try to get those details. Item! The Tales of Asgard backup strip in Thor is being replaced with a five-page featurette on... The Inhumans. Boy, you know, if you were to task me with making a Thor comic book more boring... I would be lost, but I mean, uh, this is a way to do it. You add the Inhumans. Item! Dan Adkins and Jim Steranko are the newest Marvel darlings. Also, Marie Severin and John Buscema, are, they're pretty cool as well. And they get nearly as much mail as Fabulous Flo and Jolly Solly. And I, I don't even know why I wasted the last 15 seconds saying that. Item! More on the Ivanier MMMS rating system. Now, Stan's going to flesh out and explain one ranking per month in the bullpen. So I guess we have that to look forward to. Today's rank is RFO, also known as Real Frantic One, which is given to anybody who buys at least three Marvel mags per month. Item, the X-Men are getting a backup featurette starting this month, and uh, we just looked at that. Item, Stan offers a no prize to anyone who can guess why they raised the price of the MMMS membership to a buck. And the hint is, it's not the obvious reason. Item. Four Bushman will be making his grand debut in the pages of Not Brand. Ugh. Item. Dick Ayers and John Severin will be the new art team on Sergeant Fury. And finally, we got Stan's Soapbox. Now, uh, Stan's received some more mail about the Marvel and Brand Ugh rivalry. Apparently, some from the Distinguished Competition are still bad-mouthing Marvel in their letters pages, and the fans really want to know how Stan's going to respond. Stan apologizes and says he feels no action is warranted. He says that brand Ech isn't their competition, as it's clear from the stories that they tell that they're not aiming for the same sophisticated audience. So uh, that, my friends, is Stan Lee taking the high road. Let's head into the mighty Marvel checklist here. Uh, not brand Ech number five features Bulk versus Thung, <clears throat> um, Revengers versus Charlie America. And, of course, the introduction of Four Bushman. Fantastic Four number 69 has The Thing going out of control. Spider-Man 55 has Spidey versus Doc Ock, still. Avengers number 46 has Goliath and Wasp in the Ant Hill, and Cap and Quicksilver versus Whirlwind. Daredevil 34 has DD versus The Beetle, still. Thor 146 has Thor versus a conniving crowd of crooks. 
Suspense 96, Iron Man vs. Grey Gargoyle, Still, and Captain America Reborn. Strange Tales 163, Nick Fury vs. Yellowclaw, Still, and Doctor Strange continues to deal with the Living Tribunal for like the 18th month running. Sergeant Fury number 48 has the Howlers vs. the Blitz Squad, and in our reprint corner we got Collector's Item Classics 12, Fantasy Masterpieces 11, and Marvel Tales 11. MMMS time. We have 26 newbies, including a Douglas Mensch of Chicago, Illinois. And I think this is our Doug Mensch. Uh, He would have been 19 years old at this time, and he does, in fact, hail from Chicago. That is our issue. Let's hop into some shout-outs. You know, I do have some stuff in the mailbag, but uh, today's appointment kind of pushed my day back a little bit, and I'm running late for other things right now. So I'll get to mailbag stuff uh, next time. For now, let's do shout-outs here, thanking the folks who uh, signal-boosted this little program and helped to uh, spread the word as best that we can here. Uh, over on Twitter, I want to thank Dave Schultz, Walt Nealon, Jesse DeYoung, Jeremiah, Joe Crawford, Mark Jagger, Wayne Burroughs, Billy D, and Jason Colby. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Joe Crawford, Pat Sampson, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jesse DeYoung, Andrew Franklin, and Billy D. While we're thanking folks, let's hop over to the patrons at patreon.com slash xlapsed. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. You are all the best, and your support means the absolute world to me, so thank you so much. Let's hop into contact information. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, uh, please feel free to do so. I'm easy to find. You can spot me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, Chris is on infiniteearths.com, Facebook, 90s X-Men. Of course, the audio archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed. I'd like to thank you all so much for deciding to spend a little bit of time with me today, and until next time, as always... I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.